Hello and welcome to this episode of the Jane's World of Intelligence podcast. I'm Terry Patar. I lead the Jane's Intelligence Unit. With me on this podcast, I have my colleague, Kyle McGrawty. And our guest with us today is Robert Maxwell, who is a highly experienced financial investigator and as well as having lots of other careers um, under his belt. So Robert, I'll, I'll maybe get you to introduce yourself a little bit and give us some background to yourself. And I'd also like to find out a bit from you about how you got into open source intelligence. Okay, well, thank you very much indeed, Terry, for having me and hello to everyone. My name is Robert Maxwell. I'm no relation to a previous version that fell off his boat somewhere. Um, my background is very simple. I trained in the latter, well, in the middle of the last century, I suppose, or, or in the 70s and 80s, I trained as an architect because that's what I thought would be wonderful. And I very quickly worked out that if you're going to be an architect, you're not going to make any money in a recession and you're not really going to make any money until you're about to retire. So I thought of other things to do and decided to go into or to learn about finance and this was at a time when financial analysis in the city of London and other places was still very much an amateur affair. Um, I did a, what would today be called a mini MBA on, on applied finance, was hired by, I was living in Dublin, hired by a local bank in Dublin as a fund manager. And very quickly found myself in the city of London doing the same sort of stuff just when continental European markets were opening up, which I always think is a wonderful phrase, continental Europe, but anyway. And um, I spent 25 years being a financial analyst and then a fund manager and stuff like that, focusing on all sorts of sectors, focusing a lot on Spain, which is where I live at the moment, but then doing global sectors, oil exploration, mining, I'm banking analyst by trade, all sorts of stuff. And then, of course, 2009 came along and my hedge fund that I was working for in Boston said that they really didn't have enough money for a European analyst anymore. So thanks a lot. And, you know, so long and thanks for all the fish. And I found myself thinking, what am I going to do next? And I happened upon an advert for a course in open source intelligence run by a company that you all know very well called IHS Jane's, funnily enough, uh, run by the most extraordinary character, a guy called Arno Reuser, who I know very well, and I don't think he'd be very annoyed if I described him as looking like a lead guitarist from ZZ Top. But, you know, strange I'm sure, I'm sure he's heard that one before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, wonderful guy. And I found myself one Monday morning settling down for a week's uh, work on an OSINT course at IHS, and I was the only person in the room from the financial services sector. There are a whole load of police people. There are even people who couldn't say what they did, and it wasn't their real name, and funny things like that. And they were all amazed to find anyone from the world of finance wanting to do anything in OSINT. And so, you know, I, I think, said, well, I think it left me and Arnold scratching our heads a little bit as well. <laughs> <laughs> but it was wonderful because it changed my life. Instead of the question being, I wonder if this information exists, the question changed to where can I find this information? Because it does exist somewhere. Um, and that's how I got into open source intelligence. Very quickly started focusing on financial crime, um, OFAC, stuff like that basically because if your company is quoted in the stock market and you've got an OFAC investigation going on, odds are your share price is going to go down, which is always entertaining. Um, and that's where it all came from. And so here I am, 11 years later, thinking, oh, my goodness, I, you know, OSINT. It's changed my life. I love it. And I'm a practitioner. <laughs> I'm in the trenches doing this stuff. I also happen to teach management of cybersecurity in a degree course down here in Spain, which, of course, is now fully intertwined with financial crime, open source intelligence and cyber. It's all the same stuff. Yeah, I think I think in those fields, certainly, there's no way to almost separate those things out. Cybersecurity, open source intelligence, financial intelligence. Like you said, I mean, I think I think going back those 10 years and thinking about how things have changed in that period, from my perspective, I think it's continually been the case that open source information for our sort of government and um, military, you know, the usual audience we have for our training courses, for example, 
I think for them, they've really cottoned on to the fact that actually there's a lot more you can do with open source information with, it, with what's publicly available. Absolutely. And, and I think it's been more recently, would you say, that in other sectors, they've in the past, you know, I think if you want to mention the term OSINT or open source intelligence, they probably looked at you a little bit blankly and said, well, that's just research and analysis. It's everything that's there anyway. You know, it's what we have. So it perhaps didn't make as much sense. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of techniques which have drifted across in the sense of actually there is a proper workflow here. And it's not it, it's not just a few tools and things like that. It is actually a method and it is about using those almost day to day tools. You know, search engines. Well, there, there are, I, I think there are a couple of things. If, mm. if I look back over the last 10 years, uh, the biggest thing that's happened is digitalization of everything. So first of all, and that's not just digitalization of current information. It's also digitalization of past information, which, of course, makes the investigators work a lot more interesting because if some, you know, cold cases, basically, then now might be digitalized information of stuff that went on in the 60s, 70s, 80s. On the other side, when you're dealing with open source intelligence or, or using the methodologies and techniques, it's a double-sided sword in the sense that you can find really useful, very good information about something, opportunity. So private equity, hedge funds, they're always looking for that. And equally, corporates more and more We'll use it for competitive intelligence. And then on the other side is the entire thing of risk. And what's going on is certainly within in, in the banking sector, for instance, which is a sector that typically has worked on a reactive basis. Something goes wrong. Oh, my goodness, I must reduce my risk here to beginning to work on a proactive basis, if not a predictive basis, saying where can things go wrong and um, what should I be ready to do? So the mentality of what this can be used for or the reality is beginning to shift away from being the purely military aspect of an area of intelligence that will be with other bits of information that I have and therefore my course of action is clearer. Um, it's coming straight across into, first of all, financial industry and then across most sectors as being something that can be extremely helpful, both on the productive side as well as on the uh, mitigation side. Robert, it's interesting you say that because um, as you and Terry were talking about it, my first thought was that it's not just the um, diffusion of tools or the, the trade craft that's been extended out beyond what was a military, you know, a, a primary focus for, for military personnel. It's the aftermath of 9-11 um, going way back um and the subsequent campaigns in afghanistan and iraq um increased hugely the number of individuals that had to rely on non-traditional forms of intelligence that had to downgrade declassify that and share it with other people that left universities and football teams and other roles in life to join the military and serve and now those individuals have come to for a lot of them come to the end of their careers or, you know, spent as much time in, in a military or security setting as they want to. And they've gone to banks and they've gone to financial institutions mm -hmm. and hedge funds. and They are accustomed to or familiar with the processes of, of intelligence and familiar with that, um, what that can enable in terms of improving decision making. And so, you know, I have a, I have a couple of friends. Most of them have come out of the military and gone straight into um, banks in the city or they've gone to hedge funds or things like that. And their questions, if they're not in a corporate security role, they're in a cybersecurity role or they're in a, you know, a, a money laundering, anti-money laundering or a due diligence role um, or they've gone into the police. And they're now looking for this open source intelligence to support their teams and their um, mission sets. So it's a it's a cultural shift that we're seeing as well as the staggering increase in information and um, the proliferation of tools and tradecraft. Absolutely. But I think that the the cultural shift is I'd almost sort of say I'd, I'd totally agree. But it's also a sociological shift as to what's going on in the world about us. I mean, we have exponential growth in the amount of data. We have apps and programs that we all use that we're beginning to find are highly invasive. But it, I won't go into that. Um, and at the same time, 
there's an increase in regulatory requirements that not only banks, but also corporates must be very sure of who they're trading with. So since 9-11, obviously, sanction lists, as an example, have just exploded out of nowhere. So I'm doing some work at the moment, yet again, on Syrian sanction lists. Well, you know, fine. So I get a list. It's got 700 people or whatever, you know, however many names on it gives me various aliases. It's a very cold bit of data. But if I'm looking for someone on that list, if I want to check out, I can go to one of the big, you know, one of the big three sort of external sources and they will have that person tracked as per the way that name is spelt on the sanction list. Not necessarily how uh, XYZ doctor who is now in Syria, but did was actually trained in Manchester. That's not how his name is written on his bank account that he still has open in Manchester. Um, and at the same time, you're looking for information in English, French, Francophone country, Arabic, and let alone, you know, more local sort of language or dialect. So my point here is that there's the, the legal requirement to be to have a clearer understanding of who you have any form of business relationship with is becoming a lot more serious. And so if you look at AML, you know, EU Directive 4, 5 or 6 coming down Tubidus, it will require you to know, you know, can you verify that you don't work with any of these people? And by the way, who are their known associates? Well, show me a list of known associates outside of names that are already on sanction lists. But in fact, what you can do nowadays very quickly is find out with open source intelligence is if I want to find out who the real associates of a Remy McClough or Semaphos or, or whoever are, I just start digging because I'm a trained archaeologist. I know what I'm looking at. One, I know what I'm looking for. Two, I know that it's not just in English and there are spelling mistakes all over these lists. And where can I find out about this per person? How can I do it? But what I don't have time for is noise. I cannot have noise within the results coming back at me. And that is an intelligence discipline. You know, how you search on Google or, or whatever, you know, Opera or whatever system you're using. Um, you can't have 250,000, let alone 250 million responses on Google. You want 25 or 50 that you as an analyst can work with. So as we've got this explosion in data going on and this massive increase in regulatory requirement, the question really is, do you want the red pill or the blue pill? Do you want to learn how to surf and survive the tsunami or are you just going to drown and not even know about it? That's up to you. I like that metaphor, but the one that you said that I like even more is the idea of being a, a digital archaeologist or a digital anthropologist. I think it, yeah. it rolls off the tongue better than an OSINT analyst, doesn't it? <laughs> Sounds I think, more serious. Yeah, it does. Um, I think that also when when we talk about sanctions list, for example, I mean, you know, done a little bit of, sort of due diligence work in the past. And, and I know that those are core and central and it's the start point for a lot of things where, you you, you know, you, you've got to do some digging on, on somebody um, and you want to make sure they're not on the sanctions lists. But as much as they are bread and butter for financial or financially savvy analysts like yourself or somebody who knows financial information, I wonder if sometimes or whether you've come across this when you're talking to people who are maybe open source intelligence practitioners but aren't used to financial information mm. whether they you know for me I, I often think of it as being an underexploited resource for people when they're doing general investigations they don't tend to think of these things and, and go to them necessarily straight away whereas in your line of work I guess it's you hit it straight away work out what else well, you need and then you move on to other sources I, I think that if you're working in the let's call it the purely intelligence sphere Half the time, you're actually trying to work out who the target is and find them and and verify that's who they are. Whereas in the financial world, you're starting at the other end. You've got a name, you've got a passport number, you've got an ID because the person either wants a bank account or has a bank account. So you're starting with a, a fair chunk of information already. But what you're then doing is you're following the spider's web. So you're flipping the issue. 
in the sense that if, if you're a financial investigator or a financial crime investigator, it's not normally a question of who is the person who is doing this thing. It's this is an individual or a company I want to know all about. Tell me. And you build out the web. Whereas a lot of the time and, and therefore, and you've, you've got a lot of sort of inbuilt baggage understanding and recognizing things that people are doing. Whereas in the, in the purely intelligence world, it's far more who is the individual and let's see if we can follow the money to see where it leads us up yeah. to the next little bit. Whereas in mm-hmm. fact, it's horizontal. Mm-hmm. You need to understand the web. And that's, that's, I think, one of the biggest differences and yeah. explaining to people how those webs work, how various things actually work rather than, you know, if, it, if it's complex thing, they'll pass it on to a financial crime analyst. Whereas a lot of the time it's just explaining what to me might be fairly straightforward things, but it's like telling, you know, an alien what a Mars bar is, you know, <laughs> they're open eyed saying, can you really find that out? And you say, yes, you know. Mm-hmm. public information for sure and i think the phrase you use there follow the money you hear that we hear that a lot as a cliche especially you know coming from say um working if someone is working in counterterrorism and they're investigating a, a suspected somebody suspected of involvement in terrorist activities in one way or the other you know there's always four things you're looking for in an investigation you know you need to work on identifying the individual mm-hmm. the location their activities their associations you know, those are the four things generally you're, you're looking for. And you might start with any one of those. So you might start with an activity and maybe you might have an idea of a location, but then you've got to find out who it is. You might have an identity. But like you said, actually confirming that identity and all the different variations is a challenge in itself. When, But when, when someone in that position is then sort of thinking, OK, people keep saying follow the money. Um, <laughs> how, you know, how do they go? Might, how might they go about it? There are a couple of things here. First of all, the only people that can really follow the money are the banks. Uh, an external investigator, you know, that's where you, that's where the, the road ends. You get to the wall of the bank and you can't go any further. What, what's critical in these cases is, first of all, typically there's always companies involved. So how do you find out about these companies? Where can you find out about them? Um, what are they called? And so on. And uh, for that, there are, there are, First of all, there are various uh, large databases uh, coming out of the big financial um, news and financial information companies. So, you know, Reuters, Bloomberg, Dunbad Street, all of that lot. Um, and they'll give you they'll give you quite a lot of information. And it's typically verified information. So it's come from a source that they can verify. And those numbers are deemed to be correct, maybe by because it's on a, uh, an annual tax return, which of course may be true or false, or it's an audited set of results, which increasingly, unfortunately, today can be true or false. And, and that's going to give you a snapshot of a company. But then you need more information on that company. So you're going to go to the corporate registry of that country, which typically are now online, and you might have to pay you know, 25 bucks or 15 bucks or whatever. Um, to start downloading the returns that that company has made. And that's that's an absolutely valid part, a very important part, because you're going to get more names, contacts, names, lawyers, officers, who's involved and stuff like that. And what is very clear, unhappily, is that the bad guys are very, very good at what they do. Um, the good news is that typically when they started working on the dark side, as it were, they weren't very good at it. And there's typically a mate involved somewhere along the line. So when you're looking at these people, and this is where the sort of the archaeology comes back, you need to go back in time. You need to go back to really understand. And it's it's step by step. It is level by level with a trowel and a brush as you're going down because you're really beginning to understand their story to see where it's come from. And, you know, going, going back to um, Syrian sanction list, key people there, you can go back almost year by year where they came from, what they were doing. And it's at the beginning, kind of before the war started anyway, that they thought if you opened a company in Panama, that was always going to be a secret. Well, anyone can now access publicly all of the documents 
at the Panamanian registry. You need to be able to speak Spanish, but, you know, so what? And with Google Translate, you can probably get through that fairly quickly. Not very well, but fairly quickly. Or uh, Luxembourg. You open a company in Luxembourg, no one knows about it. <laughs> but they do now. You open a company, company in the British Virgin Islands, and that company may well have had all of its data leaked, because this is where we come on to the leaks, and it be part of Panama Papers. And so you go to Open Corporates or the ICIJ website, and you've got very serious information there that is full of names and dates and companies, and you carry on digging. And so you can, and it comes back to this thing of, it is very, very difficult in this day and age to keep things secret. Because not only is a lot of stuff digitalized, but there's an increasing number of people, well, people or governments, because you never quite know who's behind them, that leak very large amounts of very interesting information. And so, you know, I must admit, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for the day that we get the Delaware dump or, you know, we get the Delaware papers because that will be great. Because that will be amazing. That yes. will be amazing. But I've got a funny feeling that will never happen. Just, just, just for people in our audience who maybe aren't aware of Delaware and, and why companies, so many companies are registered in Delaware. Maybe you can just give us a little sort of 30 okay. second overview uh, of why Delaware are in particular. Three of, after after various cantons of Switzerland, where it's almost a capital offence to talk about anything, there are three jurisdictions where corporate secrecy, where the speed and ease of setting up a company plus the secrecy around that company are quite simply awesome. And they are the state of Delaware, state of Nevada and state of Wyoming. And you and you know I, I when panama papers came out whatever it was 5 years ago i was in the middle of a big case i thought oh, great i'll be able to get a whole load of american stuff there's nothing there was the old sort of cia fruit company from the mid 60s and nothing else and so talking with an american colleague i said yeah this is really suspicious there are no american companies here it's the americans what done the leak and he said no no, we've got Delaware. We don't need to go offshore. And that's how it is. I mean, look, the weather's not as nice and it's not the same beaches, but um, but it's certainly safer. If you haven't had a chance to watch it, Netflix has the laundromat yes. about Mossack fans. It is staggeringly good. I mean, you know, it's got Antonio Banderas and, and Gary Oldman, who are exceptional actors, but it's so well Meryl explained. Streep. And Meryl Streep. Yeah. And it, it is an exceptional um, an exceptional movie. Mm. Yeah, no, I'd agree that it's, it's very good. And it's tip of the iceberg. Yeah. You know, I mean, this stuff is just growing at a phenomenal rate. You know, black money, illegal funds are growing at what, 12% per annum or whatever, you know, various people uh, say. But the money has got to go somewhere and the money has to go into the global financial system. You, ca- you know, it's like, you know, human trafficking, it's it's not a mum and dad 60,000 bucks sort of business. It's over 100 billion a year. It's going into the financial system. And the people that put this money into the system are enormously professional. I mean, when I'm doing uh, training banks and regulators, I always say that one of the biggest red flags to me now, red flags being there's something wrong here, is when something's squeaky clean. If it's squeaky clean, I start sort of, my antenna starts twitching because that means someone's probably spent really quite a lot of money and effort in making something squeaky clean. And then what's behind is the, the crude reality of, you know, whatever they're doing, layering or whatever. But So, Robert, do you, um, because you said it's increasingly hard to hide, um, do you find that the complexity of regulation compounded by the proficiency of these individuals means that yeah the information is out there so it's not secret but the obscurity of it um because what we teach to to clients and and what's on our masterclass course is a a definition of obfuscation not in the cybersecurity sense um but in the you know you may you may see my activity but you don't understand my intent it and that's from a collection of so yeah. a, a, a security tradecraft aspect I think the same might apply to financial information in that you may see information, but there's so much of it. It's so 
obscure well, there's the, so the, many the, different the, places yes the, you've to... got to be extremely disciplined on your focus there is such a tidal wave of information out there you need to understand where to go and look and what you're looking for and be able to see what you're looking for this sounds a bit silly but the, the other day i was i was in a bank training and i was explaining to them that there's a difference between reading a document and seeing a document well you know give me a document my automatic reaction is i start reading it i don't sit back and look at the document and if it's a pdf click on the you know the heading the the logo and oh that's a copy paste hmm, something funny going on here or the pixelization is different in this area than others so there, there there's a couple of things first of all one is straight tradecraft of you know what you're dealing with and how you are going to deal with it and keeping at all times a fairly tight hold on the amount of information that you've got incoming at you within that there is both obfuscation and let's call it well let's let's deal with obfuscate hiding first um it's pretty difficult to hide actually but i'm a syrian i need to access products from the uk germany us wherever i can't do it directly so i need someone that i trust and i assure you in this game money paying isn't trust it's got to be someone that in that part of the world that's typically there are blood ties you know them extremely well or you've known them from your childhood um and they will they will be the creators and managers of an external web now these people will typically have i i came across a case the other day it wasn't serious something is a far more lowly sort of spanish thing um where the guy in fact had three totally different webs set up of companies uh one within spain which was visible um another and then two distinct webs in luxembourg using totally different agents different companies different addresses different naming structures to companies because a lot of people when they don't trust people and they don't use names that they can remember because are you going to write this stuff down really uh or who are you going to tell about it So you know I remember one set of companies was all names of different grapes because obviously the guy liked his wine and he knew that he'd remember the names of grapes and another was fast racing cars well you know fine but you're you're finding patterns and one of the give one of the um one of the things that sort of gives things away is as soon as you spot a pattern and naming naming is very often a pattern that people don't really think about when they when they're creating them and i've you know you you find people that say uh they've created a company in luxembourg called finintel which is mine so i don't have a company in luxembourg called that they call it finintel and then they go and create one in cyprus called finintel as well and they create one in in panama called finintel you sort of go guys you know that's not very clever um so there's complexity i think that i think where i'm trying to get, get to is that there's complexity that the nature of the thing is complex um that doesn't mean that it's invisible and a lot of the time it's a matter of being able to stand back and recognize what you're seeing it's the jigsaw we're we're always joining dots one little bit of a 4000 word jigsaw is useless to me especially if the kids have lost half the jigsaw i'm always looking for corners and edges corners and edges to me are names and i want to put faces to those names or this is this company and this identity uh if i've got a corporate name can i see it on any registry anywhere uh if i'm in a bank I've got systems public you know private systems that will fling up those names and you know that there's something in luxembourg something in gibraltar something in well delaware won't come up but you know something in the us you immediately start going uh oh, so who are the directors who were the directors before then you've got you know silly little things like and and this is far closer to home um if you open if you register a company in northern ireland right let's say you register a company in london dairy um 
you can register exactly the same company with the same name and the same address in Dublin as being an Irish company. Well, that's great. So, in fact, I've got in my address at whatever road it is, you know, Londonderry, I've got two companies, same name, different corporate ID numbers, therefore different bank accounts. So I'm probably going to do my expenses through one and the profit will go off to 12% tax rate just across the border sort of thing. And and it's it's understanding these things as to how how money can be moved around fairly quietly without raising hackles. Um, so obfuscation can be actually incredibly obvious once you've clicked on the pattern of what they're doing. So on that note, and that's that's fascinating. I'm out. One of my father's friends was um, was a very successful um, banker, and, and he spent years um, working in the states. And he used to say, you know, the something along the lines of the U.S. tax code is 45,000 pages of uh, of A4 paper at size 11 font. So no matter who you are, you're not an expert on the U.S. tax code. It's just mm-hmm. too complicated. Um, do you have any software or any mechanisms? Um, workflows that you have built up over the years that help you deal with this large amount of information and structure it in a way that makes it easier for you? Because if you're doing counterterrorism, then it's social network analysis. If you're doing counterinsurgency, it's pretty much the same, but but there's, there's kind of different methods for it. And I was wondering if you had any any tips on that. Well, I, th- I think I think the um, there are two or three places I always go to. You know, where do you go to to go and dig for this, that and the other? And also, what do you use to dig? Um, and, and this is important because I was watching your, your excellent um, course the other day. Uh, and it surprised me that, that you, uh, this in no way against, um, you know, whether one uses Microsoft Edge, Bing, Yahoo, Google, whatever. I mean, we all love to hate Google. But the reality is that Google has about four times the number of pages searchable than Bing. And Bing is Yahoo. It's the same same engine. Um, so if I'm looking for anything, I'm going to go to Google. And I have to understand that Google will take me to about 1% of the content of the web. Now, it might take me to the front door of the other 99%, but Surface Web is, is these days minute. Google said, I think it's last year at some point, they said, we're only actually uh, indexing one in every 3,000 new pages coming up every day because they can't do any more. The explosion is so vast. So first of all, you need to, you need to, whether you love it or hate it, you need to be using Google. It's auto-translate facility is better than the rest by quite a long way. And given that you're doing finance, you're going to be getting stuff in loads of different languages. Now, I teach my first year students here down in Spain on cyber. I have them running structured searches in Russian and Cyrillic. They're blown out of the water and they go home. Can't guess what I did today, you know, checking out Putin in Russia and stuff like that. But the point is, you don't need to be a linguist. You don't need to be a techie. But you, you do have to know how to search in a structured manner because we, we can't do noise. We can't do white noise anymore. It's just got to be red. This is what we need. And so go to place number one is make sure that you really do understand what you're doing every time you search for something on Google and use Google. But then don't just use Google.com because you've got to use exactly. the, the local brands as well. And you've got to work out, you know, it's, it's like, well, I tell you one very good thing to do is um, I'm an investigator, right? Financial crime investigator. I'm never going to be the first person to know when things happen, but I do like being quite early in the chain. So I follow on humble Twitter about 200 um, investigative journalists that I think are pretty good. And that enables me, you know, once a day, 10 minutes, just quickly flicking through. Oh, look at that. There's a financial one there. Something else on Malta's happened, you know, whatever it is. And keeping tabs on people that are in the know is actually very easy because the people who are in the know tend to be journalists. 
they might, they're not going to be the first person, but they are the ones that then put it up onto the, the, the sort of the ethosphere yes. or the, you know, the news system. So you've got to, you know, looking through your, your sort of five fingers of things you really need to know, you've got to master Google. You, you really need to think through who do I want to follow? Who are the experts? Who do I, who do I value in terms of their opinion or their ability to find things out? in my vertical that I'm focused on. Then, if it's corporate land, you're always going to be checking out, has this company come up on open corporates? Is it an offshore company that someone thinks is hidden and some investigator somewhere or some whistleblower has leaked a load of information, be it from you know Luanda or Panama or Mauritius or wherever? Because there's a lot of information there and there are people adding information which is interesting, certainly in ICAIJ land and on open corporates, there are third party investigators putting new information up. So, you know, that's third area. In terms of people, then the next thing is you need to, and you know, I mean, this is amateur me coming at it from financial intelligence land. You better have a good VPN because if you're digging for information from Europe into the States, it's going to throw you out. It's going to say, you know, you, you live in GDPR, you know, GP, whatever it is. You live in privacy land. So you can't access our information in the States. So BrightMe sort of says, well, OK, I'll use this VPN and I'll go off and pretend I'm in Oregon. And it knows that VPN perfectly well and says, no, 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 mate, that's not going to work. And so then I think, OK, who are the really good VPNs and where are they based and so on? And so I say, well, let's try from Mexico City or Yucatan Peninsula or whatever. And the U.S. will let Mexico in, but they won't let Canada in. It's it's really fascinating. <laughs> so you've, you've got to you've got to know, you know, there are a couple of little, very little, very basic tech things. Yeah. You don't need to be a techie. But you do need to understand the toolkit that you need. And then finger number five is so when I get all of this information, what do I do with it? Because there is nothing worse in this world than, you know, Monday of the week, you find an interesting article, you think, oh, that's interesting, but it doesn't really fit, and so on, you forget about it, and go and have a cup of coffee. Three days later, you know, 2 a.m. in the morning says, bing, I know what that information means now, that is really interesting and vital, damn it, where was it? And of course, you know, you can't remember, and you're really going to go through 5,000 entries in your Google, you know, search history for the last three days. No. So yes. you've got it. You've, you, you really do need to understand how to manage your data. Um, and, and, and that's why we spend, you know, that, that's why we spend time on that masterclass talking about exactly that. You know, what, what VPNs can you use? What, yeah. and yeah, you're right. You need a good VPN. And my personal preference is, is for Proton VPN. Yeah. <laughs> It's 80% of VPNs were owned by the Russians. Mm, funny that. <laughs> but there's also, you know, there's, there's proxy services, all sorts of other things that, that you can do. Yeah. Um, in fact, I remember a friend of mine was at university in um, in the Czech Republic um, years ago, and he had his own little proxy service that um, he used to give us access to. And so we could dial in from anywhere in the world and, and use that. That was quite a nice little thing is to actually have that infrastructure that is not um, recognized as being a block of 100,000 yeah, IP exactly. addresses that belong to ProtonVPN or whatever. Yeah. Um, but what you said about following individuals on Twitter, I mean, my tweet deck is pretty much just other open source intelligence analysts. Um, it supercharges everything that I'm trying to find. Um, I, I've said it before on a previous podcast, but um for the sake of those who haven't heard it and, and for you, I started my master's in the first day. My lecturer turned around and said, congratulations, now you're at, at a proper level of, of education. Um, you're going to get dumber by the day. And he explained that, you know, the, the people studying the subject worldwide, their ability to learn, understand and publish far outstrips my ability to take that in every day. So as a yeah. percentage of what there is to know on a Tuesday, I know less of it by the time Wednesday rolls around. Um, which was hugely depressing way to start my master's, but was a fantastic course. Um, and I think if you can kind of force multiply your collection through TweetDeck, yeah, correct. Feedly, um, I love the fact yeah, that I can, yeah. you know, I, I can automate my RSS feeds from yeah. Excel. I can use Power BI to scrape structured data and 
And that's not a very complicated thing to do. And if you've got Power BI, it's fairly simple to set that up. And then you can visualize it. And every time you open the file, it's there and it's updated. And sure, there are limitations to it, but I don't have to learn to code in order to get there. Well, coding will be done by machines in the next three to five years anyway. I mean, you know, humans doing coding will go out the window with artificial intelligence. Who needs who needs the software, right? When you've got AI and AI, we can go on to a totally different area. Which... That's a depressing. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's another episode right there yeah exactly, exactly. yeah i mean how how ai is going to affect our ability to do open source intelligence whether it makes it easier or, or or more difficult i saw a headline i can't remember where it where it was published the other day that said prepare yourself ai means that fake news will now be infinite in its production it already is infinite, which you know it's a, that you just you can never get away from the scale of it it's mm. this unceasing wave of which is, again, hugely depressing. Thinking in terms, Robert, though, of um, something hopefully slightly less depressing, but um, thinking in terms of taking you back maybe a little bit to when you started applying some of these open source intelligence techniques, you know, and taking something that probably, would you say, wasn't regularly being used within your sector at the time or those sorts of techniques weren't necessarily being used? Absolutely. I mean, a very good example, 2014, summer of 2014, I was sitting in the middle of... uh, Square Mile, City of London, uh, digging around for information for basically hedge fund clients. And someone said to me, or a guy I worked with, my boss, in fact, said, I'm worried that there's something going on in Banco Espirito Santo, second largest bank in Portugal, largest private bank. So, Robert, given that you need, you know how to dig, go and dig. And so over the course of uh, that summer, it became increasingly obvious, and I'll, I'll sort of tell the story fairly quickly, that this bank was 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 bust and was going to blow up. But what happened? First of all, there are two things. As I, I mentioned before, banks typically work on what, what are called red flags. Something goes wrong, get out of it. Something, you know, someone's been arrested, something's gone bust, something's blown up. That's a risk. Work out how to manage it. And that's like driving a car using the rear view mirror to go forwards. You know, I mean, no one would do that, but that's how risk management used to work anyway. Um, on the other side, you can use open source intelligence uh, to discover what I call amber flags, indications of concern. And those can be anything and they can be from anywhere, but they're, they're the dots that over time you can start joining together. And so in the case of Espiritu Santo, which which blew up and was nationalized and alas, it's no more. um, There were over a period of four months, no fewer than 13 or 14 of these amber flags. And they're very obvious. For instance, the bank postponed three times in a row its annual general meeting. You sort of go, whoop, you know. Maybe they've got a party happening or someone's getting married or, you know, I wonder why they're doing this. But if you're a financial analyst, you'll sort of say, hmm, well, that's kind of interesting because the regulator must know that they've postponed, given them permission to postpone and must know why. Next thing was um, they suddenly announced this was a bank with about a five billion euro market cap. They announced that the parent company of the bank, which was family owned bank, was going to make a provision of $600 million. Didn't explain why, really, nothing concrete, but it was about the risk that the parent owner might have towards the bank itself. And he sort of went, wow, you know, $5 billion bank uh, or $6 billion bank and $600 million of provision, something going wrong here. And then because I follow investigative journalists, one of them in Angola, came up with a, an amazing headline saying that the Angolan subsidiary of Espirito Santo had a $6 billion hole in it. Now, I don't read Portuguese, no fellow Portuguese. And that doesn't matter because I've got it on Twitter and I've got Google Translate and it, you know, I get the article pretty quickly and I start jumping up and down because if the Angolan subsidiary is bust, how much capital are they going to have to write off the balance sheet in Lisbon? And that basically meant that they were going to have to raise raise money. So I start jumping up and down and ring a few people saying, I'm not telling you to buy or sell, but read this and act accordingly on the expectation that the following morning, 
this would be all across the newspapers of certainly Portugal. Next day, total silence, nothing. So and no one picked people, it up. Well, no, mm, no <laughs> I'll comment on that in a okay. minute. Um, if they picked it up, they dropped it for whatever reason. And so this went on. And, and then a, a couple of weeks later, lo and behold, the great and the mighty are raising one billion of capital for Espirito Santo. And, the, you know, the great and the mighty are the usual investment bank names who have analysts that do uh, a thing called enhanced due diligence, risk analysis. And these people all came out saying, this bank's fine, no problem anywhere. And I'm sort of jumping up and down saying, guys, there's a big hole in Angola. And everyone's sort of saying, oh, yeah, shut up, what do you know about this? And this goes on and on. And then bit by bit, things start. So they raise a billion, which was all lost within the four, following four weeks. And then funny, hidden, offshore, off-balance sheet lending, hidden in Switzerland and Luxembourg, la di da di da di da The reality of it was that, in fact, the guy who was running the subsidiary bank down in Angola had decided it would be a very good thing to lend $5 billion to six or seven people in that country, primarily generals, with no security, with no documentation, and put a couple of hundred million in his own back pocket at the same time, and the bank went bust. And uh, so... I ended up, well, not as soon as the Portuguese, the uh, Angolan thing came through, I sort of thought, well, you know, you've got a bank in Angola. Angola is a member of the World Bank. That means that the website or the, the, the books of that bank, the balance sheet and so on, will be in the files of the Central Bank of Angola, which are public. So I found myself in a website that was sort of, you know, circa 1994 website, very slow. But I actually got to a balance sheet and profit and loss. It was about two years old. And it told me that the total deposits in Angola of this bank were one and a half billion dollars. And yet the guy had given out five. So you sort of say, well, where did you get the other three and a half from? So you're always trying to do the sums in your head or you're trying to work out the jigsaw. Um, and of course, that three billion or three and a half had to be lent down into Angola from the parent bank in Luxembourg, in, in Lisbon, which meant that bank was bust, which, you know, 4th of August or whatever it was, it was, it was bust, it was gone. Now, my point here is that by using techniques and methodology that are typically used in open source intelligence, you're able to work that out very quickly. And we saved one large bank that had a $100 million line of credit into the bank they closed that down literally about a week before it folded. So they're very lucky, very lucky. I mean, are those? I mean, that's a great example. It's a, and it's a great case study. Are those techniques that you, you mentioned there then since then and since other examples maybe that you've worked on or others have worked on, are those techniques now starting to become more common in that sector? Or is it still a case that actually there's an ignorance of or not ignorance necessarily, but lack of drive to do these things properly. Like you mentioned enhanced due diligence and mm. I've, I've never been quite sure what's enhanced about it, but, um, <laughs> just because you're doing more. Exactly. Yeah. And so, um, you know, as, as you mentioned that it's not, it's not necessarily always done properly um, because I, it is ultimately absolutely. a cost center for yeah. banks. It's a box ticking exercise in many ways. Um, it's, it's not given the resources perhaps that it should be. Um, Although, but are, are there? Have you seen any improvements? You know, are there you starting um, more of these well, things? Two things, just to sort of divide the financial services sector. Hedge funds, private equity are all over this stuff. It is built into their DNA. They are very, very good at it, and they're disciplined. And well, they for them, it's problem. about it's about the opportunity, though, isn't it? Rather yeah. That, well, it's both it's sides. You can okay, go yeah, long, yeah, you can true, go short, true. you can make but money the, either way. So, but is, is it also because of the scale as well? Yes, they're looking at fewer deals. Fewer deals and they've got scale. the resources to do it. Whereas in the banking sector, there are really two or three different things. First of all, as you say, it is a cost center. Uh, it's typically part of the compliance department. Compliance is the biggest, I think, you know, certainly within the top three single biggest costs within the P&L, within the operating costs anyway. Um, and there's a reluctance to put any more money down there. 
you have to then add to that a certain natural reluctance to really want to discover much more about clients than you need to. Um, now, I'm not saying that that's wrong or illegal. That's just the way banks have always been. Are they changing? Very definitely, yes, because the regulatory pressure on them is increasing and, and the responsibility is not only on the bank, but also on senior executives. So things are things are changing. Do they have far to go? Miles. Um, quite simply, typically, this sort of level of investigation will be used or, or risk management will be used in three different areas in a bank. One is the obvious area of compliance for onboarding new clients, know your customers and enhance due diligence for a certain risk level of client. Um, and also within that, under under regulation, under, under uh, EU AML 4 and 5, banks are required to know what business that their clients are in, involved in. And if a bank that is a hairdresser in Huddersfield is suddenly importing cars from wherever, that should flag up. And if it's a bigger company, you know, even more so. Why are you suddenly going into Uganda? You've never been in, you know, you've never been in East Africa. You've never been in Africa. And now suddenly you've got a great Uganda business going on. What's the story? So they're under regulatory requirements to look, look at that. The other area is counterparty risk. Now, counterparty risk is, is, is operational risk within a bank. It's not sort of the customer risk um, or reputational risk. It's It's operational risk with a big R. So if you were a bank that had counterparty agreement with Banco Espirito Santo when it went bust, you had an issue, a bigger or a smaller issue, but you had a quite a serious issue on your hands, certainly if you're another Portuguese bank or a Spanish bank. Um, and then finally is the entire what, what we are seeing, and I think where banks are beginning to progress quite well, is the creation of the financial intelligence unit. So at least they're beginning to get the know-how inside the bank. I mean, I, I, I do some investigations for some smaller banks, but typically a bank will not allow a third party in to do any sort of investigation. And they're quite right. They need to have this working knowledge in-house. And it needs to actually be transversal across a number of different departments because it's as relevant in the frontline banking area in investment banking, in legal, in risk. And that's where I think they're kind of still struggling. Um, because, And I think a lot of it is because people don't realize just what extent of information you can find. Mm -hmm. And a certain amount of, the Americans would term it, a certain nod towards willful blindness, I really don't want to know. Um, that's not the sort of information we should be digging out about our clients. So that's the problem. But isn't isn't that ultimately costing the money? You know, that yes, they, yes, they, yes, they, it, for, it, with a little bit of investment in in upgrading those capabilities, financial intelligence units internally, they could actually save themselves ultimately money. Absolutely. And and what happens is when something does go wrong or when something is proven to be a significant aid, they suddenly wake up. So I'll, I'll get called in to train people. Typically, when there's been a scandal, something's gone wrong and they say, well, didn't that Maxwell guy tell us something about this? Maybe <laughs> we should get him in and, you know, listen to him this time. But But then at the same time, don't forget, you're in a bank. Uh, certainly you're on a trading floor or in a research team, you are not allowed access to Facebook, to Twitter, to any social media. You know, in some of these trading floors, mobiles are left at the door. Mm. So that's an issue. And then you go, you know, one client I have, air-gapped building. Well, if it's air-gapped and you're not allowed on to social media, what do you do? And the guy laughed and he said, well, we all smoke, don't we? We all go down with our smartphones to the door and we do it on our smartphone. You sort of think, oh, my God. And they do very good investigating. You know, they're very mm. good at what they do, but they're doing it off, uh, you know. Yeah, it's risky, hugely risky. Um, yeah. So it ain't easy. Uh, mm. But I think I think there is the tide is turning in the sense that it's becoming more recognized that this is 
a a methodology that you need to have in house. It's not a toolkit. It's it's you need people that get this, that can do this stuff, and that they come with your mindset and they understand, you know, the quid pro quo within the enterprise, and also they know what they're looking at. You've got to have people that understand what they're looking at. We've been talking for a while, Robert, and we've really only just covered the sort of traditional financial models and investigations around those. I mean, if they're struggling to understand that with information that is out there, as you say, freely available, um, as long as you know where and how to look, how do you deal with cryptocurrency or threat finance associated with Mm -hmm. insurgent and terrorist organizations? It's very difficult for banks to get their head around that. And of course, some of them will see it as a you know, a foreboding or a a problem for future models of moving money and conducting financial transactions. And so there's a reluctance to do anything about cryptocurrency. And, and so well, the, I think the, the two different things. Um, sorry, they're not different things. There, there are a couple of different issues here. First of all, cryptocurrencies. I think it's probably fair to say that the bulk of transactions in cryptocurrencies are criminal. Uh, in origin. And then the punter who's been told that this is a wonderful thing and you really should buy Bitcoin or Monado or whatever it is, is the poor sucker on the other side who's creating the volume. Um, and that's and, you know, and and so th- this is all about placement of ill gotten gains. I can play the game against myself from two different locations from one single desk and shift money from Budapest to, you know, Bangkok. Uh, by betting against myself on a big game. Hmm, wonderful. Um, cryptocurrencies. There are two things there. I think as banks get more of grip on, on things like blockchain and so on, they'll begin to understand that actually these things aren't quite a, an, as anonymous as a lot of people would like to think that they are. There are known repositories of every single transaction in Bitcoin. Okay, they're all locked up in, in blockchain and it would take you know, decades to unravel it all. But there are people who've saved all of this money because by definition, it's blockchain and therefore it's public. Okay. On the other side is terrorist financing. And I think, oddly enough, my my take on this would be that the issue of terrorist financing is a lot smaller than the issue of crime inc. financing. And terrorist financing tends to be actually at a very individual level, which makes it incredibly difficult to find unless you're analyzing all of your transactions. And that, you know, whether the suspicious uh, activity report or, or the STR, the suspicious transaction report, big data, big data increasingly is helping banks understand where there's a suspicious pattern. Whether they report that or not, it's, it's a transaction, it's not an activity. So there's, there's a little bit of a difference in the legal department there. Um, so you're telling me I've got to I've got to get my Hawaladar to start moving my Bitcoin away. Uh, well, into gold. If, if you're using him to do it, you've <laughs> probably got a technological problem. Anyway. <laughs> you, know, you should probably be asking your five year old how to do it. But anyway, um, I think there is a pretty colossal exaggeration as to the scale of terrorist financing. I think a lot of it is very homegrown and done locally. Uh, for whatever reason. And they also, also, they know, they know that everything is being tracked. Yeah. Uh, putting, I mean, putting a couple of million through a system here and there is not a big issue. It's when you've got tens and fifties and hundreds of millions, the Mexican drug cartels, you've got a really big problem. And I remember talking to one very senior banker saying, look, uh, everyone knows that the FBI will take down a human trafficking, uh, organization they're they're on the case they're working it it's public knowledge um and when these uh indictments are unwrapped and opened at the end of the indictment indictment is invariably a list of banks that are moving that are moving the money and your bank could be one of those names i'm not saying that i know anything i i, I don't but I, I just know that's sort of the area and i said um and he said well you know clients <laughs> don't do this sort of thing I said, yeah, that's what someone else told me. But of course, you know, they own a bit of a bank in Turkey. 
bit of bank in Mexico. And you're telling me your clients don't do anything? He said, no, no. Let me explain very carefully. Robert, read my lips. Our clients don't do that. I said, okay, fine. I understand what you're saying. You know, you know, I know, fine. I know what you're saying. Now, be ready for a Thursday midday call. Hard drives. What would you prefer to say to the, uh, you know, FinCEN investigators or whatever? Ooh, we didn't know that our clients did that. Or funny, we've got an internal program that specifically is focused on investigating in this area. And we've actually closed down 17 client accounts over the last year because of worries that they might be involved in it. What is where is your bargaining position with that investigation? Now, it's totally different. And until banks begin to actually sort of say, you know, around at the moment, there is an absolute terror in banks to being the next BNP. And I, I'm not, you know, I'm an ex-Paribas person. So, I, you know, I've got a lot of respect for BNP Paribas. There some extremely good, competent, clever people in these banks. But everyone's terrified. You know, I mean, a 10 billion, 9.6 billion dollar fine or 1.5, you know, anything that's, you know, billions, that's the end of your pension made. And you may go to jail. So people have abject terror around this. And what's the human reaction to terror? Run straight towards it with your arms open <laughs> or hide? hide? It's normally paralysis. And, and so there's this yeah. double side to legislation. Is the legislation working to help an issue or is it furthering an issue by creating corporate terror in the sense of or corporate fear of, oh, my God, I really don't want to know because that's where we are at the moment. And that's actually what the FinCEN files show you. You know, just, yeah. So this is the recently leaked set of SARS the, um, yeah. that came out in the news. Yeah. Um, Which, is, in and of themselves, I think you know, uh, you and I were discussing this earlier, but in and of themselves, don't necessarily say a huge amount. But the act of leaking them and what they indicate is probably a bigger deal. I I, I, I think so because what it's showing is that what was good, competent, uh, effective uh, ways of doing things. Eight, ten years ago, with the speed of technological change coming through, which is now exponential, just doesn't cut the grade. I mean, you know, we had a leak of this was 2,100 reports. Yeah. Well, in uh, uh, reports, I think from 2018 or 19, right? There are two million reports made that year. How many transactions are there a day globally? We're talking trillions. So, you know, it's not even scratching the surface so that, you know, one of these reports talks about some Russian doing something or other. You know, frankly, so what? What it says, what it shows is that I think banks need desperately to up their game in tracking this stuff. And that means investment. And, you know, where are banks at the moment? I mean, we've got banks selling on book values of price book value of you know, 0.1, 0 0.2. No one wants to buy a bank. Because Google's going to become a bank. Amazon's going to become a bank. Facebook's going to have its own currency. God bless them. Um, you know, the world is changing and banking is a really tough business to be in. And on top of that, you've got the regulator really looking to shoot you down. So, you know, I'm, I'm not when I saw the FinCEN files, I sort of thought, well, you know, wow, not only have things not changed, but given that everything else has changed. It's, it's becoming quite an issue. But I think it's good that the leak occurred. I think this is important. You know, if banks need help, regulators actually need to start helping them. And they're not at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's the, the, the mere expense of running your compliance team is, is vast. Yeah. Now, are they achieving a great deal? They're achieving a heck of a lot more than they did 10 years ago. You try and open a bank account. I mean, the amount of data that people have on people opening accounts and so on. But, it, you know, it's the, the, the professionals that come in, the money launderers. They've already done their social engineering. They know yeah. exactly who they're going to face. They know that there's bank holiday coming up. Everyone's in a rush to get out. Da, 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 da. Yeah, you know? it's a huge I mean, it's a huge challenge for the sector. And I think, you know, ho hopefully what we can take away from what we've discussed here is that 
there are techniques that they can use. There are things they can do. Mm. There are things that they could be doing better. Some of that relies on perhaps better training, better you know adoption of open source intelligence techniques, a better understanding of actually how they can conduct investigations to avoid risk, um, or for the for the hedge funds to, to to identify those better opportunities. Yeah, there are options out there. Maybe things will move in the right direction eventually. That they will start to get on uh, to figuring out how to do this this better. And and you know, I mean, it, it's, it sounds like there's going to be a lot of structural change required before that happens. But hopefully, by by doing our bit and uh, banging the drum for better open source intelligence skills and more training, that you know, people might start to wake up a bit more and, and figure out actually there is something they can do about this. And the, the FIUs and the banks can uh, take on board more of these uh, techniques and practices and um, and do more to, to prevent some of the, the criminal activity that maybe is, is sort of going uh, unnoticed at the moment. And it's always fascinating to talk to you. And um, I feel like we can we can carry on talking for days on this and i'm i'm conscious it's getting late in spain so uh <laughs> it's very early in spain don't oh, worry I see. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah you're not going out you know you're not going out for dinner until 10 exactly we're not going out we're all confined again wow. or oh. we're all about to be confined again so you know robert thank you so much it's been really interesting and just to to pick up on the one point you made um if we think the banks are in abject terror about this um, your comment about Facebook having its own currency. I read a fantastic, fantastic article about how uh, within 50 years, there will be more dead people than live people on Facebook. So it's going to become our digital graveyard <laughs> with all with all its digital currency tied up in dead accounts. Now, the social engineering implications of that, the ability to move money through six billion dead accounts um by all accounts they they remove hundreds of millions of dormant and dead accounts and fake accounts a year so well, they staggering came out, they came out, there was one number i mean sorry we can go i'm not going to get onto facebook because i can talk about <laughs> it forever um, yes. but they well, that's a definitely depressing note to end on million a year wow say it say it again robert uh they uh, it was estimated, their own internal estimate is that duplicates and dead accounts about 2 to 3%. And we've got 1.5 billion accounts, right? right? That is from insiders within that company. That's, a, that's being economical with the truth. It's more like 8%. So we're talking around about 120 to 150 million fake accounts. A lot of them created by bots. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we can go on to Ashley Madison and all of that lot sort of thing. But... But the reality is it's it is out of hand and I rather suspect out of control. But, you know, who am I? Wow. I mean, I, I feel like just in the last just in the last five minutes, we've come up with ideas for at least three spin off episodes for this podcast. <laughs> yeah. this is phenomenal. Um, and hopefully uh, oh, I, th- I think what we need to work on, though, is making them a little bit less depressing. <laughs> oh, uh, and also and not, we need to put it on a VPN and, you know, be totally anonymous as to who we are. Yeah, that's, that's true. Get on to yeah. Russia. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, no, indeed. Robert, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for joining us on this podcast. It's been really, really fantastic. And hope we, uh, we continue the discussions at some point and. Well, well, maybe whenever the next FinCEN or the next Panama Papers, etc., happens, uh, we can uh, we can talk again about what, what what lessons have been learned and what's changed. And uh, that could be a short conversation, but yeah, <laughs> a win, not a <laughs> Who knows? Well, thanks thank so much, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, thank Robert. You thanks, Char, for joining, and um, thanks everyone for listening. <laughs>